This is the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Austin Beeson, Chair of the AAOS Resident Assembly. Thank you all for listening in. On this episode, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. David Martin. Dr. Martin is the Executive Medical Director for the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, ABOS, and he's a professor of orthopedic surgery at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. He's the former director of sports medicine at Wake Forest, where he served as the team physician for 18 years. Dr. Martin, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm happy to talk about some of our programs and processes at the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. We are a separate organization from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Our organization consists of a 21-member board of directors, and I lead a staff of 12 individuals in Chapel Hill to carry out all those programs and processes. And while we are separate from the academy, we enjoy a close collaboration and hope that this will help to continue that process. Most orthopedic surgeons would agree that becoming board certified is one of the most important milestones in our career. Aside from passing part one and part two of the boards, what does it mean to you to be board certified by the ABOS? Yeah, that's a great question. Our mission at the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery is to serve our patients. We serve our patients first, but we also serve our profession. And as a profession, the field of orthopedic surgery has been given the opportunity and the right to self-regulate. We don't take that lightly, and that ability to self-regulate separates our professions from others. We look at board certification through the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery as a program that's for orthopedic surgeons by orthopedic surgeons. So that ensures competency not only in residency education and preparation for board certification, but also in orthopedic surgeons throughout their career to ensure that they keep up with orthopedic surgery in the field that is constantly changing. That's great. And I do know that one of the primary requirements to become a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is board certification. In many ways, it's a stamp of approval from your peers and a really important step towards maturing as an orthopedic surgeon in practice. That's correct. Our board of directors consists of 20 practicing orthopedic surgeons, and we do have one public director And all of our board members participate in the very same processes as we do to become board certified. So I'm sure over the past 10 years, board certification has changed. And I suspect over the next 10 years, it will change even more. What changes have occurred in the past 10 years and how do you see it evolving in the next 10? There have been many changes in both our initial certification program and our maintenance of certification program. We have looked at each of those processes across an orthopedic surgeon's career and tried to streamline those. And that's a challenge. If you look across the field, we have practitioners who are in individual private practices in small towns. We have orthopedic surgeons in large group practices, in academic practices, in private practices. And we try and meet each of those orthopedic surgeons where they are and also ensure that our board certification initially will make orthopedic surgeons able to show their competency in all areas to enter any one of those practices. We also want to stimulate lifelong learning. So we have learners 
like yourself at the beginning of a career who have had a far different course of training than those orthopedic surgeons that are maintaining their certification at the end of their career. We have people who enjoy and function better with book learning, if you will, and we have orthopedic surgeons who do everything online. Maintenance of certification has changed a lot. Initial certification, not so much. But what I would emphasize is that it is not just a test. Many people look at board certification as either a written test or an oral examination. And in point of fact, it's a process. We look at an orthopedic surgeon's career. We look at peer review, where they've trained, case list for each orthopedic surgeon who becomes initially certified or recertified. We also look at their practice pattern, and that involves not only a written examination for knowledge, but an oral examination to look at how they function in practice. From a resident standpoint, one thing that has changed, we require five years of education in an ACGME accredited residency. And in each of those five years, we require 46 weeks of education. So that allows six weeks for vacation or other periods away from that residency program. What we have done recently over the past three to four years, residents can average those weeks of training to allow them to have time for life events, such as having a child, such as being away from residency education for a certain period of time. And we have accommodations at the written examination to allow for increased time if people need that for various health reasons or need a private room or need special accommodations to interface with our exam. We have extended break time for breastfeeding mothers. So those are some changes we've made more recently. Thank you so much for the overview and highlighting things that are really important for trainees like myself starting practice and coming through this process. I'm also really glad that you mentioned lifelong learning because I do think the ABOS and certainly the maintenance of certification program really emphasize that as a part of our practice because it's, like you said, not a static thing. And what we learn today may change over the next 10, 20 years. And so that's, I think, a really important thing that the ABOS and board certification mean to orthopedic surgeons. Sure. I think a couple other things I would mention for residents in preparing for the written examination, which is generally taken at the end of residency, we now have a fairly detailed blueprint for what exactly the examination covers on our website. And that's a PDF document that can be downloaded and used to focus periods of study. I will also say that we've partnered with the Academy to try and prepare residents for the ABOS Part 1 examination by linking that examination to the orthopedic in-training examination that the academy puts out. And residents, as you know, take the OIT every year. So the blueprint for the OIT examination will match the blueprint for the Part 1 examination. And we are also sharing questions across those two examinations. When a resident then takes the OITE, we can let them know what score would correspond most likely to a pass on the part one examination. So a resident can follow their progress through their residency on the OITE, and that can be really helpful. So that's been a major accomplishment over the past three to four years, and we've really worked very hard and appreciate the Academy partnering with us to make both of those examinations more valuable and 
if you will, to open up that black box so that residents understand the body of knowledge that they'll be required to accomplish by the end of residency and allow them to follow along and allow their program directors to follow along. Once a resident takes the part one examination at the end of residency, those unsuccessful candidates have a hard time getting access to educational opportunities. And to know that someone's behind or needs a little extra help during their residency can be much more valuable. That's a great initiative. Thank you for mentioning that. The process and logistics of board certification is something that you annually provide webinars on, and the ABOS is always available for specific questions regarding the process. And also, you mentioned resources on the website that folks looking to prepare for this process can go to. That said, what would be your advice to residents, fellows, early practice surgeons on how to best prepare and be successful for board certification? My advice would be to have an outline. And I think our blueprint provides that outline to focus on the OITE and look at that as a measure each year as to how a resident is progressing, I think is important. And then as someone is preparing specifically for the examination, I really would encourage them to go to our website. There's a tutorial about the examination, about the administration of the examination that will allow a resident preparing for that exam to be familiar with the platform. And residents now have taken a lot more examinations at testing centers, so it's not as much of a black box, but the way the platform works, the way you can highlight a question, the way you can mark a question, the way you can go back and forth and look at the timing, I think is very important. Our test is given in blocks, and each block is a single examination in and of itself. So you can change answers within that block, but once you leave that block, that's finished. And so to look at that block timing on our website would be uh, very important. There are lots of practice examinations out there. All of our questions have two references. For the part two examination, that comes from practitioners' own cases. And as part of that, we have added patient-reported outcomes. We're very proud that we're the only board that actually asks patients for information about those individuals that we are certifying. And so as a practitioner enters their case collection period, which is in their second year of practice, they will ask a patient for their email. And then we, in turn, use that email to send out a patient-reported outcome questionnaire at preoperatively at six months post-op and at one year post-op, and then give that information back to that individual prior to them taking the examination. After that, we give them a report that will allow them to look back over that six months of cases and see how those patients have reported. We use the PROMISE program, and so we look at both physical function and pain interference and get that information back to those practitioners so they can utilize that as they improve their practice. As far as the case upload process, once a case list is submitted, we then take that case list and choose 12 cases for presentation at the oral board examination. To start that upload process of all those documents and images is very important. That's a big change in the oral examination over the past five to 10 years. When I took the examination, I carried a large sheath of x-rays and three huge notebooks of information to Chicago to take the examination. That's all done electronically now. And so that upload process takes place between April and June, just prior to the examination in July. 
Obviously, the examination has changed over the past two years. We hope to go back to a regular in-person oral examination in July of 2022 to watch the videos that are online, to start the upload process early, to look at those 12 cases carefully, and starting all those things early is very important. That is great advice. Starting early and having a game plan, I think that's a perfect takeaway for most folks getting ready for this process. I do want to switch gears a little bit. Recently, the ABOS launched a resident advisory panel. I'm curious to see what the intention of this initiative was, and has it been successful so far? Sure. That's a great question. And I would say one additional thing that I would mention to finishing residents. As you finish your residency, you take part one. That can be the written examination either after residency or after fellowship. But once uh, an individual finishes their fellowship, that generally being in August of the following year after their residency, you really want to be sure to have hospital admitting and surgical privileges by November 1 of that year. That will allow you then to take the oral board examination a year and a half later. You need to have privileges by November 1. That's sort of a date that our credentials committee does not move around at all. As far as the resident advisory panel, we're really excited about the resident advisory panel. Obviously, we have focused on candidates and diplomates, and those are individuals in practice We really want to look at residents during the time that they're in their residency educational programs to get them ready for board certification. And this honestly came about as we became involved with residents through the American Board of Medical Specialties Scholar Program. And we had uh, chief residents and first year practicing individuals get involved in that program. And they came to us and said, you know, all we know about the ABOS is that we have to write a big check and we take this terrible test right at the end of our residency. And we really want to try and, again, open that black box. So we had several focus groups of residents to try and look at what we could do to better communicate with residents. And what came out of that was our resident advisory panel. We launched that last year. We have our initial group functioning now, and they work with our graduate medical education committee and our communications committee We are going to add to our current resident advisory panel, and those applications will become available in January. That's fantastic. I really get the impression that the ABOS is trying to be transparent, and that transparency, I think, comes from two-way communication. And I think the resident advisory panel is really an effort to communicate with us. As a final question, how can residency programs improve their curriculum and education practices to best prepare residents or graduates of their programs for the board certification process? And I know we talked a lot about developing an outline and starting early in this process, but are there components of the residency process that could be improved to put residents in the best position possible to be successful on the boards? Yes, that's a great question. It's something I really wanted to touch on. Honestly, right now, at the end of residency education, you need five years in an accredited residency program, and the program director and the chairman need to sign a statement that says, Dr. Beeson has completed the residency successfully, and he's ready for orthopedic practice. There are no real measures there. Now, individual programs may have measures, but there are no real good measuring sticks for residents. And what we looked at was a three-pronged stool, if you will, of knowledge, skills, and professional behavior to give program directors and residents 
control over their education. So the knowledge portion was the OITE program that we talked about. You also need to acquire surgical skills. Ours is a hands-on profession. The KSB program has a tool whereby residents can, on their personal device, as they go into a surgery, send a request to the attending surgeon and said, please evaluate my performance on this procedure. Immediately after the procedure, the attending surgeon either gets a text or an email, and they can quickly fill out a short evaluation that goes to the program director and the uh, resident, and you can follow your surgical skill acquisition over the course of residency. And as we add procedures to either our required competency or exposure list, that allows residents to tailor their education. Professional behavior is a very similar evaluation that takes place at the end of rotations and at the end of the year. And that can give, again, a program director the ability to follow a resident in those three areas. We think if you have good professional behavior, good surgical skills, and good knowledge, that makes an orthopedic surgeon. And then that prepares you to go through the initial board certification process. And we are very anxious to work with the academy and the resident assembly to try to make those programs better. I will tell you a short story about that. Early on in my time as executive medical director at the ABOS, probably five years ago, several residents from the assembly came to me and said, your part one examination does not allow enough time for breastfeeding mothers to pump. I will say that I was not aware of that. And so I went back and looked at our break time. And in point of fact, they were correct. And so we have now developed a breastfeeding timing program that allows for additional break time for those individuals. So that's not a hurdle. We want to take away all those hurdles and make sure that the playing field is level across the board. So that's a way, hopefully, that our resident advisory panel at the ABOS can work with the AAOS resident assembly to further unpack the process and make that more clear for residents during their educational process. That is such a great story. And I think perfectly exemplifies the responsiveness of the ABOS to orthopedic surgeons and certainly trainees coming through the process. So thank you for that. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to mention? I would stress the communication. We would like for you to contact us if you have questions. We have tried to make our website more accessible. We are active on social media. We have a number of podcasts at the ABOS site that are available that talk about a lot of these processes. We are open to a dialogue, open to suggestion. As you know, orthopedic surgery has not done well as a field in diversity, both in gender and in race. And we want to make sure at the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery that we are not part of that problem. We want to make sure that the playing field is level. And so if there are ways that we can do that by changing our programs, we are happy to open that dialogue. And our resident advisory panel would be a great way to get directly to the board, to our Graduate Medical Education Committee, our Communications Committee, to do that. So I would encourage you to 
look for those individuals and contact them. And certainly don't hesitate to contact me or any other board member. And don't hesitate to contact your certification specialist. And we have changed our communication process. So if you see an email from the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, please look at it. We do not send blanket emails. So if you get an email from the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, it's pertinent to you. That brings up just one other point. As residents move through their residency, their emails change and their contact information changes. I would encourage you to go to the ABOS website and update that information. Emails are primary source of communication, especially now as we have changes in the way that the examinations are being given. When you get your email that says you are approved to sit for the part one examination, schedule that as soon as possible because those seats fill up and depending on social distancing and depending on the staffing of various testing centers, that availability can change very quickly. And if you can't get to the testing center that you would like, please give us a call and we'll try and work through that with you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. This has been a lot of fun and really great talking with you and hearing your insights on this. For our listeners, I would point you towards our wrap-up notes where we'll include links to a lot of the references and websites that Dr. Martin mentioned. Thank you again, Dr. Martin, for being on the show. And we look forward to continued collaboration between the ABOS and the Academy in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and to hear other conversations on professional development, please visit aaos.org forward slash the Bone Beat career. <laughs>